Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read, a locally produced program which features authors from right here in the San Joaquin Valley who read their stories on the air. And tonight, a fascinating story by an old friend of ours, Fresno State Professor Steve Yarborough. He entitles his story, The Intersection. Here he is, Steve Yarborough, reading The Intersection. The Intersection When she saw it, she was walking down the street in an older section of Fresno. It was a broad street, two lines of traffic going in each direction, a grassy median in between. Redwood and ash trees shaded the sidewalk, so that even on a day like this one, when the temperature climbed above 90 before 8 in the morning, it wasn't quite unbearable to walk here. The shade trees, more than anything else, had made her sister buy the house. Her sister called it a mission-style house because it was made of adobe and it had a red tile roof. She and her ex-husband had bought it four years ago, and Ellen had kept it after the divorce. She'd had to fight hard for it, she said. It had been a nasty trial. Sandra had been staying there for almost two weeks. Every morning, she got up, made coffee, ate toast, read the local paper, and took a long walk before Ellen, who had often had several drinks the night before, even managed to wake up. It's your vacation, Ellen told her. You ought to stay in bed till lunchtime at least. I'm just an early riser, Sandra said. But the truth was she would gladly have stayed in bed if she thought she could lie there without brooding. She knew perfectly well that she couldn't. Always, she'd start thinking about how much had gone wrong, about her badly failed marriage, all the years she had spent working hard and buying lies. Now she was 50. She managed ads and circulation for a weekly paper in a small town in Mississippi, the same town where she and Ellen had grown up. Her son, whom she had raised without help, had graduated from Ole Miss and gone to work with an accounting firm in Memphis. He called her every weekend, but he was dating someone now, and he hadn't been back to the Delta in six months. Pretty soon, she supposed, even the phone calls would stop. She had a heart problem. Tachycardia, it was called. Sometimes, when she got too excited, her heart would start beating like it meant to pound its way right out of her chest. She felt it speed up that morning when the green car, a Honda Accord, she learned later, a 1981 four-door, started under the green light, traveling through the intersection in the same direction she was walking. Her left eye registered blurring white motion. Then all the predictable things happened, and predictably they all seemed to happen at once. Brakes screamed, she heard the sounds of impact, metal caving in, glass shattering. A second impact as the driver of the Honda lost control and veered into a pickup that stood parked at the red light the white car had run. Later on, telling Ellen about it, she couldn't say whether she'd moved immediately or not. Maybe she'd just stood there for a few seconds, one hand over her mouth, the other at her breast. 
Or maybe she was already off the sidewalk, her shoes leaving tread marks on the sticky, melting asphalt. Certainly, by the time the driver of the Honda forced his door open and climbed out, she was just a few feet away, close enough to see the blood on his forearm, the glass crystals on his T-shirt, the white lines that formed on his face as he grunted and tugged at the rear door. He had almost made it to the car that morning before he heard her voice. Luke, could you just take Sally with you? She had hollered. Could you just give me maybe 15 minutes by myself to take a bath? He didn't mind having Sally with him, really, but he hated what it took to get her into the car. Briefly, he considered pretending he hadn't heard, but he wanted to go out in the garage when he got back and play guitar for an hour or two, and if he walked out now without Sally, there was no way he'd get any practice in today. He'd be defending himself up until time to go to work. Sighing, he turned and opened the screen door. Lynn stood in the living room in her underwear and a T-shirt. Dark bags hung under her eyes. She was just 24, a year older than he was, but lately she'd begun to look a lot older. They didn't sleep much. Sally dreamed a lot about spiders. Usually Lynn went to her, but on really bad nights, like last night, when she had woken up at least three times that he remembered, he would finally be ordered to the front. He didn't exactly work magic. Generally, he blundered into the dresser or tripped over some toy that lay on the floor, and when he cursed the dark, Lynn would yell down the hall, Christ, see if you can't wake her totally up. Leaning over the bed last night, trying to lay his hand on the sobbing bundle that was his daughter, he had said, Listen, there is no spider. Daddy, there is. I swear to God there's not. There is, she cried. Jesus, Lynn hollered. I mean, are you soothing or what? Listen, he whispered, gritting his teeth. There are spiders. You're right about that. But they never come to our house. You know why? Why, she sniffled. Why indeed? Because, he said, doing his best, they don't like your daddy. They like me, she bawled. They want to eat me. This morning, Sally sat on the couch, naked except for her panties. He started to ask if she wanted to go with him. He knew the answer would be no, but Lynn was wise to that trick. Hell, he said, let's get your clothes on. Outside, he looked over his shoulder to see if they were being watched. They were, so rather than let her ride up front with him, which he preferred because it was simpler, he led her to the back door and hoisted her into the car seat. As always, it took some doing. She didn't like the seat, and he didn't blame her. The one they had was a deluxe model. It had cost $93 plus tax at Toys R Us, but it couldn't have been very comfortable, and she twisted and pushed at the restrainer until he managed to make the latch catch. He went out every morning to buy the paper. He bought it for the want ads. He worked full-time at a record store, but he didn't make a lot of money, and ever since Sally had been born, he'd lived with the feeling that ruin lay just down the street. Most months, they kited checks the last week. He used to play lead guitar with a band that was good enough to get an occasional job down the coast. There was talk of a demo, a move to L.A. But after Sally was born, Lynn started insisting he stay home at night and help her. The third time he begged off practice, the band dropped him. He hadn't found anyone else he liked to play with. 
He didn't have the time now anyway. He'd probably never have it again. He bought the paper, and sitting in the parking lot at the 7-Eleven, he opened it to the help-wanted section and laid it on the passenger seat. Then he pulled out of the lot and headed home, letting his eyes scan the ads while he drove. He never saw the car coming toward him, but later on he began to think he must have sensed it. He remembered tensing his muscles, leaning away from the door as if he hoped to avoid the impact. The white shape drove him sideways. Pain seared his knee, sharp and unrelenting. His chest felt as if it were about to split open, and his left arm was numb. The windshield lay all over his lap. The dashboard had buckled. The steering wheel was warped. His first pleasant discovery of the morning. He could still breathe. His arms and legs worked. They hadn't been detached. Reaching down to release his seat belt, he remembered Sally. She was screaming. Then he was outside the car, standing in the middle of the intersection, looking through the window at her face. It was a beautiful face, it suddenly occurred to him, tan like her mother's, with a delicate nose and a mouth that seemed permanently pursed, even as she cried. He felt almost as if he were seeing her for the first time. He hadn't looked at her so closely since she was a baby. Don't take her out, he heard someone say. He felt a hand on his shoulder. A woman was standing there beside him. She wore wire-rimmed glasses. Her hair had turned gray. She looked like she'd been through a few crises in her life. He knew without being told that many of those crises had involved kids. If your little girl's hurt, she told him, it's best not to move her. It was at that moment when she said the word hurt that he recalled the ads he'd seen on TV, the ones in which a series of earnest faces addressed the camera, telling it how much this or that lawyer had gotten them when he settled their accident, and he remembered thinking what a blessing it might be if one day he got rear-ended. 600,000, he heard one voice say. 220,000. Half a million. Groaning, he collapsed full length on the pavement. I heard the man who was driving the wrecker say he couldn't believe the fellow had managed to open his door, Sandra told Ellen. He said there was intrusion of 18 inches. The car was just mangled. They were sitting out back under a tree, drinking gin and tonic. The temperature was probably above 100. Sandra's back was soaked. Ellen, in her white tennis shorts and pink blouse, looked perfectly cool. She liked to put them on when she came home from work. The woman just ran the stoplight, blazed right through it. To her credit, she was quick to own up. Bad move, Ellen said. How do you figure that? Well, on the back of my insurance card, there's a list of do's and don'ts, and the first don't has to do with the admission of guilt. This is California, honey. They can take your panties. I guess if I'd run through a red light and come that close to killing a little girl, my panties might not be the first thing on my mind. Ellen giggled. They can take what your panties cover. Are you drunk? Oh, I don't know. Maybe a little. I suppose you gave the cops your name and my address? I sure did, Sandra said. After the ambulance took the driver and his daughter away, she'd spent more than 15 minutes talking with the policeman. She told him what she'd just seen, and two other witnesses described things the same way. She had held the little girl for a long time after they removed her from the car seat. 
The paramedics didn't think she was seriously hurt, but Sandra had had her doubts. She could feel the quivers that kept running up the child's spine, and it seemed like her eyes were unfocused. What's your name? she'd ask her. How old are you? Sally, the girl had whispered. I'm a little more than four. My mama's going to be worried. Ellen said, You shouldn't have gotten involved in the police report. If the kid's father's the type that cries whiplash, you're liable to end up on the witness stand. Sandra had been thinking off and on all afternoon about the way the driver had burst out of the car and immediately tried to get to his daughter. He hadn't even realized how badly he'd been hurt. His first thoughts had been of her. I wouldn't mind testifying for him, she said. Ellen threw her head back and laughed. The skin on her throat had begun folding itself into wrinkles. The next few years were going to do some things to her that Sandra knew she wouldn't enjoy. That's a new one, Ellen said. Up till now, we've always testified against guys. The lawyer was in his 60s, a pot-bellied, balding man named Shelby, who was a close friend of the people that owned the house they were renting. Luke had first wanted to contact one of the firms that advertised on TV, but Lynn vetoed it. She said they were sleazeballs, the kind of people she didn't want to be in the room with for five minutes. They met Shelby in his office two days after the wreck. They had ridden the bus because the Honda was totaled. The other driver's company had offered them $900 for the property loss. The adjuster sounded like he thought he was being unduly generous. Shelby poured coffee for them and handed Sally a piece of hard candy, which she began to tear out of the wrapping. She'd come through the wreck okay, they'd said at the hospital, except for a bruise on one elbow. Tapping a copy of the accident report that lay on his desk, Shelby said, That's a good report. Luke had almost told him thank you. Somewhere he had read that the net worth of the human body was $7.63, and he'd begun to view his and Sally's bodies as stakes that might be parlayed. He didn't feel particularly good about thinking that way, but he was tired of having nothing, tired of looking at Lynn's sleepy face each morning and feeling guilty, tired of being the kind of father who couldn't take his kid out to Black Jack's Fun House, where for $6 she could ride in a bumper car and simulate collision while he sat under an umbrella and sipped cold beer. He couldn't make any money off his music, so he meant to make some off his suffering. Of that, there had been no mean amount. His left knee, which had been driven against a steering wheel by the caved-in door, was the size of a grapefruit, purple and blue. He'd woken up yesterday morning unable to turn his neck. Today, he'd had trouble even lifting his head off the pillow. What I'm going to ask you to do, Shelby said, is to take Sally here and go see a chiropractor I've used in other accident cases. He wrote the man's name and phone number down on a card and handed it to Luke. Then he leaned back in his chair and clasped his hands behind his head. Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, he said, you probably wouldn't have come to see me if you were out to make an easy killing off this wreck. I try to achieve a fair and equitable settlement for my clients, no more, no less, and in most cases I can do that without getting into an evidentiary situation. I don't chase ambulances, and I don't take on clients that I don't think I can help. You've got a good case. The other driver admitted blame. The police have mailed her a citation, 
and you've got three witnesses who corroborate your account of what happened. In crude terms, the question is how much are we entitled to, and the answer to that question will depend on the extent of yours and your daughter's injuries. A doctor got used to confronting disease. A PI lawyer must be used to facing greed. Do you have any idea, Luke said, what a ballpark figure might be? None whatsoever, Shelby told him. It just depends on how badly you two have been hurt and whether or not there's any long-term damage. As they got up to go, Luke remembered the woman who'd run up to the car and urged him not to pull Sally from the car seat. The woman had held her while the paramedics cut the leg off his blue jeans and looked at his knee, and later on, as they were rolling him over to the ambulance, she had pressed a scrap of paper into his palm and asked him to call when he knew how Sally was. This woman, Sandra's a pony, he tells Shelby. She asked me to call and let her know if Sally was okay. I didn't do it yet because she's one of the witnesses and I thought maybe I shouldn't contact her. Of course you should, Shelby said, laying his hand gently on Luke's shoulder. There's nothing wrong with a little honest PR. When the phone rang, Ellen hollered, Will you get that? Sandra had been sitting in her bedroom reading. She was staying out of the living room this evening because Ellen was in there with a the man she'd met at the mortgage company where she worked. They'd gone out for drinks earlier and come home loud and giggly. The guy was at least ten years younger than Ellen, maybe more, and after one look at him, Sandra knew he'd sleep with her sister once, maybe twice, and then start ignoring her when they passed in the hall. But one evening, when he was out drinking with a couple of men from the office, her name would come up, and one of the other guys would poke him in the ribs. Hey, you did a little time in the cell with her, didn't you? He'd say no, but the grin on his face would give him away. In a couple of days, one of the men he had been with that evening would stop Ellen at the water fountain and ask if, he, if she was busy later. Fortunately, Ellen lived in a city. No matter how fast word traveled at work, news of her need was unlikely to become municipal property. There were too many people, too much going on. The call was for Sandra. It was the man whose daughter she had held after the wreck. I wanted to let you know Sally's doing better, he said. She's got a pretty bad bruise on one elbow, and I think maybe she's had a couple of bad dreams about getting hit because she's waking up at night. But on the whole, we were really lucky. In the living room, Ellen laughed shrilly. Is that an offer? She stage whispered, or a challenge? Sandra couldn't hear the guy's reply. She didn't want to. She walked over to the sink, stretching the phone cord until it was taut. She turned on the cold water. You're washing dishes, the little girl's father said. I'd better let you go. Oh, no, she said, turning the water back off. I was just getting myself a drink of water. I'm glad you called. I've been thinking about your little girl a lot. And she's been thinking about you. She told my wife how this nice lady held her while the guys from the ambulance were taking care of her dad. We're really grateful to you. The sound that came from the living room could not have properly been described as a moan, but it was something less or something more than language. Sandra's hand had started sweating on the phone. Her heart was beating faster. I'm grateful to you, too, she said. It took him quite a while to reply. To me, he said? Why? She didn't know what to say next. 
But she'd have to say something, and it ought to be the truth, as much of it at least as she knew. She heard floorboards creaking, footfalls in the hall. Someone opened a door and then closed it. I'd like to get out of here, she said. Now he sounded really puzzled. I'm sorry? He probably thought she'd been drinking. He probably thought she was some lonely, middle-aged woman who went home from work each night and got smashed. Probably right now, he was looking across the room at his wife and his daughter, watching the two of them leaning over a coloring book, filling in the lines of a dragon or a troll, and thanking God that he wasn't her. I'm from Mississippi, she said. I'll be leaving in two days. Going back, I mean. I was just out here on vacation. I wonder, would it be all right if I stopped off this evening just to see your daughter and tell her goodbye? Would that be too much trouble? You told her what, Lynn said. She was standing in the middle of the living room. It seemed to him that whenever they had a confrontation or even a simple misunderstanding, she stood in the middle of whatever room they were in while he found himself in a corner, just as he was now. She was the attacker. He was the defender. But sometimes he liked to imagine that he'd one day go over to offense. He liked to imagine that he'd say, Okay, if I can't please you no matter how hard I try, why don't you take your high school diploma, hit the road, and look for work? He didn't know for sure why he'd never done that. He liked to think it was love that restrained him. She asked if she could come over, he said. What could I say? She was nice to Sally. Plus, she's a witness. You heard what Shelby said about PR. PR? You think it's good relations to let her see we live in a garbage dump with Sally? Jesus, Luke, look at this room. He couldn't deny it was a mess. Sally had left her crayons lying all over the floor, and he'd left the paper scattered about. The room needed vacuuming, too. That was his job, but as usual, he'd forgotten to do it. It was the kind of house, Lynn liked to say, that needed cleaning at least twice a day. It had hardwood floors that must have been beautiful once, but the finish had long since worn off. There were scuff marks in the living room and a big patch of graying wood near the front door where the previous tenant's dog had experienced several mishaps. The walls were gray plaster, barren except for a few squiggly lines Sally had drawn with Crayolas. While Lynn went to put on a dress, he knelt on the knee that didn't ache and gathered up the paper and the crayons. Sally sat on the couch watching. That lady's coming to see me, she said. Sure is. You be nice to her, okay? Okay, she said. Does she have a little girl, too? She's too old to have a little girl now, he said. But I'm sure she had one once, either that or a little boy. Did you ever see them? He balled up the paper, then remembered that the trash can on the back porch was full. Damn, he said, and shoved the hole wide under the couch. Did you? Sally said. Did I what? Did you ever see her little boy or her little girl? No, he said, I never did. If you didn't see them, she said, how do you know that she had them? He stood and walked over to the armchair where he expected the woman to sit and looked toward the couch. The newspaper wasn't visible. I could just tell, he said, from the way she behaved. She said, can people tell from the way you behave that you've got a little girl too, even if they don't see me? Sitting on the couch in shorts that Lynn had brought her at the second-hand store, 
her hair neatly combed, her face clean and smooth. She watched him with her dark eyes and waited for his answer. I don't know, he said. Maybe they can't. You could tell that it had been a rental property forever. It was tiny, in need of a paint job and a new roof. Standing so close to the street you could almost call it traffic, it reminded Sandra of a lot of houses she'd lived in back when her son was still young. You ate and slept in those houses, but you never came home to them. At least she never did. Once she was inside, sitting across the room from the couple and their daughter, she wished she hadn't come. She wished she'd gone to a motel for the night, or maybe to a movie. Her presence had made them uncomfortable. Stiff as mannequins, they sat together on the couch, rode up as if posed for an Olin Mills photo. I'm glad you're all right, Sally, she said. You were quite a little trooper. A wreck's such a scary thing to go through. I was scared at first, the little girl said, but later on I wasn't. That's what I mean about you being a trooper, Sandra said. You seem like a little girl with a great outlook. She told the parents not to worry. She'd seen the whole thing, and if they needed to go to court, she'd be happy to testify in their behalf. Insurance companies, she said, could be nasty. We're already finding that out, the father said. He told her what they'd offered him for his car. I mean, it wasn't the fanciest car in the world, he said, but it ran. I don't know what we can buy for 900 You can't buy anything for 900 she said. At least not anything you'd want Sally here to ride in. Right now, he said, I don't think I wanted to ride in anything at all. You get hit once like that and you start thinking maybe you'll just walk from now on. You'll probably be feeling the effects of it for a long time, she said. So will Sally. Taking all that into account and considering the trouble you've already had with the other driver's insurance company, I think you and your wife ought to go see a lawyer first thing tomorrow morning. After that, nobody said anything for a while. Then the little girl's mother cleared her throat and asked if Sandra would like coffee. No thanks, she said. I ought to be going. I just wanted to come and tell your daughter bye. And I guess I ought to tell your husband something, too. She was already rising from the armchair. My son never got what you gave your daughter the other day, she said. He never got that one single instant of total concern from his father. My guess is he'll never give it to his own kids either. That's assuming he ever has any. Maybe he won't. Probably he shouldn't. I think a lot of people shouldn't, she said. I think a lot of kids would be better off dead than having what they've got for a father. Halfway to the door, she looked back over her shoulder. What she saw, she would always remember. Lying awake in her house in Mississippi, a house so empty that it sometimes seemed to ring, she'd recall this final image. The woman and the little girl leaning against each other as if they were cold and seeking heat, though the room was unbearably stuffy. The man sitting stiffly at the far end of the couch, the distance between him and his family much greater than the inches it added up to. Twice a week, he and Sally rode the bus downtown to the chiropractor's office. Having her neck popped terrified her, so all the way there she clutched his hand with her sweaty palm, and all the way back she leaned against him sniffling. He held her close, brushed her bangs out of her face, and whispered that the trips would soon stop. The x-rays hadn't shown any serious damage. 
just small misalignments that might have existed even before the wreck. On those bus rides, Luke thought a lot about what the witness had said the evening she came to their house. It had made him remember something that had happened to him when he was no older than Sally was, something he used to think about a lot when he was a kid, though he'd forgotten it after he left home. He and his mother and father were living down close to Bakersfield when it happened. And at the time, his father had what he called a steady job, driving a propane truck for a bulk plant. They were doing well enough, it seemed to Luke. He got toys from time to time and new clothes, and they didn't live with his grandparents anymore. Then one Friday night, his father came home reeling, blood trickling from the corner of his mouth. The pocket ripped off his work shirt, his breath stinking like he'd been eating slop. He yelled at Luke's mother, something about feeling like he was choking. I've got a good mind, he said, pounding the top of a counter with knuckles that were already bruised, to put you and him in the road. You just try it, she said, but it didn't sound to Luke as if she really wanted him to. His father grabbed her arm and held it. I can damn well do it, he said. You remember that quick claim I got you to sign? The trailer's in my name. Luke hadn't understood the part about the quit claim, but the business about the name was clear enough. The next day, while his mother cooked supper, he slipped outside with a bottle of red nail polish. Ridged siding wasn't easy to ride on, but he did the best he could. That evening, when his father climbed out of his pickup and saw the words Luke Fisher in runny red beneath the window, the skin on his cheekbone sagged. He leaned against the pickup, face pressed against the window. After a while, his shoulders started shaking. He never mentioned putting them in the road again, and he did his best not to yell at Luke or his mother. He rarely went out on Friday nights, rarely came home drunk, and he took Luke to a movie or a ball game on the third Saturday of every month, though he didn't seem to know what to do or say when they got there. For a long time, Luke misunderstood. He believed the glue that bound his father to him and his mother must have been love, and all it had taken to make his father realize it was the sight of his own last name, coupled with the name of his son, written in bloody red on a house trailer that the bank would eventually repossess. But now, as he and Sally rode past muddy vacant lots, past boarded-up storefronts, Victorian houses with sagging porches, white paint peeling off their columns and sheets, he understood what a sticky substance a father's guilt could be. One day soon, Shelby would call him up and tell him it was time to settle, that the pain he'd endured was worth 2000 3000 maybe four at the most. Even then, robbed of the hope that he'd have enough money to buy a little more time and a little more space, he would make no move to extricate himself. It was as if, having climbed into a vehicle with a certain set of passengers, He'd remain at the wheel until the road ran out. Steve Yober reading his story, The Intersection. It's all about a serious accident involving Lynn, who had her four-year-old daughter in the car.
What the story really tells us is how an accident of this type can shake, twist, and undermine family relationships that otherwise seem fairly solid. The accident turns out to be the centerpiece of everything that happens as a consequence, and as we heard, it put Luke and Lynn's marriage under a great deal of stress. In general, the number of variables about accidents just about boggle the mind. Where and when did the accident happen? What kind of vehicles were involved? What was the speed limit? Did it happen on a regular street or a highway? What about the weather? Were there stop signs involved? Were the occupants wearing seat belts? Was there safety equipment for the children? On and on. Recently, we read about a woman who lost her life because she tried to avoid hitting a dog. She was on her way to sign her retirement papers. So maybe we ought to do what the grandmother in the story suggests before we pull out of that driveway check to make sure that all car safety equipment is in place and working. Friends, before he moved back east, Steve Yarborough, our author tonight, was a very popular professor at Fresno State. He contributed a great deal to developing our show and was one of only six authors on our very first series. He's been published many times. Among his books are Family Men, Mississippi History, The Oxygen Man, and The Native. We thank him for all he's done for our program and the fine stories that he's read for us, and of course, we hope he sends us more. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our writer will be Judy Ryan. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Riders Read. <laughs>